Hey, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 18. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. This is the fourth week in a series of sermons uh, called Unexpected Truth, in which we're looking at six of the parables that Jesus taught. He taught more, of the, more than six, but we're just looking at six of them, and we've looked at three so far. Today, we're going to look at the fourth one, and it's found in Luke chapter 13. And as I've been saying throughout the series, parables, at least on the surface, seem like these unassuming stories that Jesus tells, and he uses common, ordinary things to teach spiritual truth. But for the thoughtful person, there's always like these mind-blowing, unexpected truths, paradigm-changing, worldview-changing truths for people who do care to think deeply about these parables. Let's start this morning by reading the parable in verse 18 and Luke chapter 13, and then I'll, I'll comment uh, more about it in just a moment. Luke chapter 13, verse 18, then Jesus asked... What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? And he said, it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Uh, last week, Amy and I uh, were in Dallas for a wedding that a friend of mine asked uh, me to perform for him, and since two of our sons live in Dallas, we thought we'd stay a few extra days to spend some time with them and try to catch a few of our friends as well. Uh, however, we were in for a very rude awakening because when we, get there, when we got there, our sons didn't feel the same sense of urgency about seeing us as we saw as we felt about seeing them. On Thursday night, one of our sons uh, he was out of town for work. We got that. That's not a problem. Uh, the other chose to attend a little voluntary co-worker uh, dinner with his co-workers. That's fine. I get it. Um, on Friday night, they had plans with friends. Saturday night, they had plans with friends. It was Sunday before they deigned to see us. Now, don't get me wrong. I would have done the same thing uh, when I was their age when my parents came into town. But Amy and I aren't my parents. We are very cool uh, people. We are hip and happening people. They should want to spend time with us, but they didn't. Uh, and so we had a little more time on our hands than we thought. So to demonstrate how hip and happening uh, we are, on Saturday night, we went to one of our favorite theaters and saw the movie Downton Abbey. Now, I ask you, what young single man would not have wanted to watch Downton Abbey with his parents on a Saturday night, right? Anyone see this movie, uh, Downton Abbey? Bunch, some of you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had this parable from Luke uh, 13 uh, in my mind as I was watching the movie, and for reasons having to do with the plot of the movie that I won't give away, it occurred to me that for many cultures, the subject of this parable would probably come more naturally than it does for American cultures. Jesus asks in verses 18 and 20, to what shall I compare the, the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God? That's the subject of this parable, the kingdom of God. And as an American who has never lived under a monarchy, uh, for many years, I didn't understand what Jesus meant when he referred to the kingdom of God. I understood the gospel. I understood church. I understood, uh, you know, to some extent why the Bible referred to Jesus as a king. But what is the kingdom of God, and why does Jesus talk about it uh, so much? Well, I'm going to explain this in a more detailed class uh, next February for anybody who would like to take the class. But for now, just a quick explanation of this. You might want to make note of this, that the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible. It's the central theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God. And in a nutshell, here's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God refers to God's people 
living in God's place, a physical place, and flourishing as they live under God's rule. So it's God's people living in God's place and flourishing under God's rule. Now I want to unpack that for just a moment. Uh, I want to think for just a moment about the opening pages of the Bible because there in the opening pages of the Bible you see a pattern, maybe you'd use the word a prototype, uh, of the kingdom of God. You have God's people who are who? Adam and Eve, living in God's place where? The Garden of Eden. And they are flourishing under his rule. They're experiencing spiritual and emotional and physical uh, and relational well-being. Everything in the world worked the way it was supposed to work as long as Adam and Eve continued to live under God's authority. Adam and Eve didn't ever fight over what to watch on Netflix. They never had to worry about gluten, lactose, or peanut allergies because their bodies just worked. Neither of them needed counseling to deal with their issues. They didn't have issues because they didn't have parents to give them issues. But if they did have parents, they would have made time for them when they came into town. I promise you that. <laughs> this is, that's the pattern. That's the prototype of the kingdom of God. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, a physical place, Eden, flourishing, like really doing well under his rule. That's the pattern. That's the prototype. But things didn't stay that way, did they? They could only flourish as long as they freely submitted to the rule of their king, and they didn't continue to do that. They rebelled against him, and they immediately began to, the word I like to use is, is they began to disintegrate. Like everything began to fall apart. Their relationship, their bodies, their psychological well-being, their relationship with their king. And so you see Adam and Eve, God's people, Adam and Eve, no longer living in God's place. They've been exiled from Eden. No longer flourishing. Instead, they're experiencing what we see in the world today. Conflict, relational separation, separation from God. Because they're no longer living under His rule. They have rebelled against His rule. And the perfect, the pattern, the prototype of the kingdom of God, the, the perfect kingdom of God has been ruined. And the question that hovers over the pages of Scripture that describe all of that is this. Has it been ruined forever? Is there any hope now for the world? Has all been lost? Is God done with His creation? And almost before you can even finish asking the question, God promises that He will send a king who is from the nation of Israel who will reestablish one day what was lost in Eden, God's kingdom on earth. And I'm going to skip over a whole ton of the Bible in the interest of time, but that is precisely what we see at the end of the Bible, that God's king who is from Israel has reestablished, still in the future, He has reestablished at the end of the Bible what was lost in Eden. You see, God's people, all of the nations of the world, once again living in God's place, what's called the new creation, and flourishing under God's rule. Revelation 21.4 says that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. So the perfect kingdom of God on earth has been reestablished with Jesus as its king. That's what Jesus is referring to by the kingdom of God, a time in the future in which God's people are once again living in God's place and flourishing under the rule of Jesus as king. That's what he means by the kingdom of God. That's what he means. But what's weird is that in this passage in Luke chapter 13, 
Jesus talks about the kingdom of God not as if it's something still in the future. He talks about it as, as, as if it is something in the here and now. Did you notice that? In verses 19 and 21, he doesn't say, he doesn't say the kingdom of God, future tense, will be like a mustard seed or yeast. He says it is like a mustard seed, present tense. It is like yeast. How do you explain the present tense? Isn't he talking about something that's coming in the future? Well, even though the physical kingdom of God is still in the future, there are many people now, like many people in this room today, who have already recognized God's authority over their life and are coming under his authority through faith in what God's king, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. And so theologians, theologians have, have come up with this brilliant, highly technical phrase to describe this. They say that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. That's brilliant, isn't it? Already, but not yet. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is present among God's people here. It's not fully realized. That will still happen in the future. But there are people now who are living under God's authority increasingly bringing all of their lives, more and more of their lives, under God's authority today. That's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the kingdom of God as well. There is an already but not yet sense of the kingdom of God to which Jesus is referring in Luke 13. The kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible. Now, in the remaining verses of this parable, Jesus tells us a couple of very important characteristics of the kingdom of God. Here's the first one. You might make note of this. He's telling us that the kingdom of God is an obscure but unstoppable, unrelenting power. It is an obscure but unstoppable, unrelenting power. Look at verse 19 again. He says it's like a mustard seed which a man took and, and planted in his garden and it grew and it became a tree. And the birds of the air perched in its Branches. Jesus is telling us through the metaphor of a mustard seed that Christianity is not just an idea or an intellectual position to be subscribed to. It's not just an ideal and it's not just a philosophy to hold. But Christianity is a power and it is a supernatural power at that. The Apostle Paul writing in the book of Romans says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of of God, not just an idea, not just a philosophy, not just an ideal, but he says it's a power. It's a power, it's a supernatural living power, but it is an obscure power, a power that doesn't look like powered by the world standards. Jesus compares it to a, to a mustard seed, and, and let me ask you, when you think of power, what do you think of? Like, I'll bet you don't think of a tiny, I bet you don't think of a tiny little seed do you? Tiny seed doesn't seem powerful. It doesn't seem powerful in the face of military might and you know, all of the power, collected power in Washington, D.C. or Wall Street or, or, or the major corporations in the world. A tiny little seed, that doesn't seem like power. It seems like the opposite of power. And like, think about it like this. What happens, what happens if a tiny mustard seed has, uh, for instance, uh, what, if it, what if a tiny mustard seed has a, a high-speed head-on collision into a slab of concrete? What happens? Uh, well, the mustard seed is the loser, is it? It's not going to survive uh, that kind of a collision. The Roman Empire was the political power of Jesus' day. It was the military power of Jesus' day. It was the economic power of Jesus' day. Think of the Roman Empire as the huge slab of concrete, all right? 
It was huge. It was massive. It, it was powerful. And who was Jesus? He was a nobody. He was a nothing as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. An obscure Jewish carpenter from an obscure Jewish village born to an obscure Jewish woman. In fact, it's, it's, it's really fascinating that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a tiny seed because here's what's interesting. The Bible actually refers, refers to Jesus as a seed. Did you know that? I mentioned a moment ago that just after Adam and Eve rebelled uh, against God, the question that hovers over the pages of the Bible is, is this, is there any hope for the world? And, and almost immediately, God answers the question by making a very obscure reference. And I want you to, want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. God is talking directly to Satan right after Adam and Eve have sinned. And he says this, he says, I will put enmity, which it's a word that means hostility. I will put in hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her, uh, what's the word? Seed. And then it says, he, so it's saying the seed is a person, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, look, I'm not going to bore you with the details here, but the Old Testament traces who the woman's seed is all the way into the New Testament, and it turns out that the seed to whom it was describing is guess who? Guess who? It was Jesus. Jesus came into the world as a tiny seed himself, planted in the womb of a virgin. And the massive slab of concrete that was the Roman Empire crushed him on a Roman cross. How powerful can any kingdom be when its king dies in weakness? Here's the thing, though. Even though a seed won't survive a collision with a slab of concrete, if you bury the seed in the ground, it will slowly but surely grow. And one day, you've seen this before, like in the sidewalk or in your driveway or maybe somewhere else. One day, over time, the tiny seed will crack the slab of the concrete, won't it? That's the kind of power that's in the seed. It'll crack through the concrete. It's an obscure power, but it's a power. Power even greater than the slab of concrete. It'll crack through it. The obscure seed who the Roman, whom the Roman Empire crucified and buried ended up cracking the slab of the empire centuries after Jesus was crucified as an enemy of the, of the empire. Christianity actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Cracked through the slab. And today the Roman Empire no longer exists. But the seed is still growing, still thriving, still spreading its branches all across the globe to every nation on earth. In fact, every totalitarian empire throughout history, from the Roman Empire to the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union to the Hutu government of Rwanda to the central government of the People's Republic of China, every totalitarian empire that has tried to crush it has found the kingdom of God to be an unstoppable, unrelenting power, a supernatural power, a living power that no human power can ever crush. And that one day in the future, as the book of Revelation says, will have brought every human power that has set itself up against the kingdom of God into subjection to it. The kingdom of God is an obscure, but unstoppable, unrelenting, supernatural, living power. You cannot stop it. You cannot crush it. You cannot defeat it. It will bring every human power into subjection. That's the kingdom of God. Not just an idea, not just a philosophy, not just an ideal, but a power and a supernatural power at that. That's what Jesus wants us to know here. Here's the second thing, though. 
what's this unstoppable, unrelenting power do? Like, what's it for? What's its purpose? And that's what Jesus wants to to see in the last part of this parable. Jesus asks in verse 20, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? And then he compares it now, moves from the mustard seed metaphor to to yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Make a note of this. The kingdom of God is power. It is is obscure. It is unrelenting. It is unstoppable. And it is power for transformation. It is not just an idea. It is not just an intellectual position to hold. It is not just a philosophy. It is a power. It is a supernatural power. It It is a living power. And it is a power for transformation of the human soul. Jesus uses yeast to represent how the power of God transforms a human life. I want you to think about how apt this metaphor is. Yeast yeast is alive, even if you buy it dry. When you put yeast in the dough, it transforms the dough. How, How does it do it? From the inside out. And here's the other interesting thing about it. The yeast does it without replacing the dough. It changes the chemical structure of the dough, but it doesn't replace the dough. In the same way, when you place your faith in Christ, the resurrected Christ who is alive enters your life through the Spirit of God, and and he transforms you, but he does it from the inside out, and he does it without eclipsing you. In other words, your personality. He doesn't eclipse your personality. He transforms you And he transforms you into more of what you were always designed to be. There's a sense in which you become more human as Jesus Christ transforms you from the inside out. You become more of who you were designed to be from the very beginning. The kingdom of God, like yeast, works through you. It is power for transformation. Now here's, here's, I think, a very important question that we have to ask about this. What does this transformation look like in the life of a person who has become part of the kingdom of God? In other words, if you had to make a list of the markers of transformation, what would those markers be? The characteristics of a person who's been transformed, what would those those markers be? How would you describe uh, what it looks like for a person to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something. The sad thing is that in many churches, the markers of transformation are merely lists of petty external behaviors that don't require the supernatural power of God. Like just little silly external things. They don't require the supernatural power of God. I'm going to have, watch you, I'm going to have you watch a video and then I'm going to have you listen to an audio clip. And undoubtedly, some of you have already seen this video. This past week, a white, off-duty Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison for killing a black, na- a black man named Botham Jean. After her sentencing, the court allowed members of the family to address her in court. And... I want you to watch. This is the this is Botham Jean's 18-year-old brother uh, speaking. If you truly are sorry, I know. I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. 
And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. popular sports station that I listen to from Dallas that by no means is a Christian station. Uh, the three radio personalities that you're going to hear on this clip are often outspoken against Christianity. They're often cynical about Christianity, and many of the ways that Christianity gets expressed in our culture. But I want you to listen to their response, just a few minutes here, of their response to what you just saw. The hug was the most powerful thing, and I've thought about this because I, I don't want to be exaggerating or using hyperbole here or anything, but I really believe here now, 16 hours removed, I think it's the most powerful thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I start tearing up as I'm seeing this unfold in front of me. It just the, the stress that this trial was for everybody involved, even the onlookers, even mm -hmm. the public here, the residents of the Metroplex, I couldn't believe what I was watching, and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I, I immediately want this 18-year-old kid to be president of the United States. Yeah. You know? Like, this kid's got something. How often do you see people live the faith that they profess like that boy, that that, that guy did? He right. was a young man, 18 Rarely. years of age, yeah, that's and he has that much wisdom. Me. 18 yes. years. And he said that yesterday. Awesome. The whole thing, the whole 45 minutes or so from the time that he, he got up mm -hmm. there to everything that the judge did that I know you're going to get to, the whole thing was the most remarkable chain of events 
that I can ever recall seeing. Mm-hmm. And I, I know we saw a lot of powerful things around 9-11 and, and other traumatic and tragic events, but really, I've never seen anything like this. The undeniable marker of genuine transformation through Jesus Christ is love. In this case, manifested across racial lines through a forgiveness that can only be described as supernatural. Don't get me wrong, it is never wrong to seek justice when you have been wronged legally. Justice is a part of the character of God, absolutely. But even justice can be sought with love and forgiveness. Three cynical, hardened sports radio commentators can't escape the power of the gospel when they see it demonstrated. Listen, I want to tell you something. When a football player hits his knee in the end zone and says a prayer, it doesn't move their needle. When a basketball player says he wants to thank God after a game, it doesn't move their needle. When a prosperity gospel preacher on television claims he can heal the sick, they tear him apart. But when an 18-year-old young man demonstrates love by forgiving the woman who took his brother's life, it's the most powerful thing they've ever witnessed, and they repeated it over and over again if you were listening to them. The kingdom of God is power for transformation, and the undeniable marker of that power is not which political party you belong to, or who your favorite pastor is, or how many podcasts you listen to and the sermons that you listen to, or what you believe about the age of the earth. The undeniable marker of the power of God is an increasing capacity to love, to seek the well-being of the people around you. Don't tell us about how much you pray or how many Bible studies that you've been to unless they're increasing your capacity for love, which is the whole point of those things. And we'll know that you are increasing in your capacity for love by the way that you treat your spouse, by the way that you respond to people when you don't get your way, by the way that you respond to people who see things differently than you do, by the way that you treat your children, by the way that you react to people who criticize you, by your capacity to love across racial lines, by your compassion for the marginalized of society, and yes, by your capacity to forgive the people who have hurt you the most deeply. If the blood of the kingdom of God is running through your veins, the undeniable marker of the power of the gospel is an increasing capacity for love. That's what transformation looks like. The kingdom of God is obscure, but it is unrelenting, it is unstoppable, and it is a power for transformation of the human soul. And by that we mean the increasing capacity to love people. That's the kingdom of God. Now, please. One last thing. Those of you who are in high school, those of you who are in college, Don't ever think, not for a minute of your life, that the power of God cannot work through you. An 18-year-old young man just preached a sermon with his words and with his actions that are more powerful than all of the thousands of sermons that I have preached combined as an adult. The kingdom of God can work through you whatever your age. The kingdom of God is a power that began in obscurity. It often spreads in obscurity, but it is an unstoppable unrelenting power for transformation. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we are undone when we see the love that an 18-year-old young man shows, the forgiveness that he extends to a woman who took his brother's life away. Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that it is a reflection of what you, the King of the kingdom, has done on the cross 
for us. We took your life and you continued to love us. Lord Jesus Christ, would you transform us as a congregation into a people who love? Let that be the marker. Let that be the marker of City Church. Lord, would you change our relationships? Would you give us an increasing capacity to love the people around us? And Lord, we thank you for the power that is unleashed in the cross. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray today. Amen.